We are at the end of a four-week series, and if you have missed a four-week series, you can go onto iTunes, and you can type in Boulder Church, and you can search for the messages and download them as video files or audio files as you're running and you listen to that kind of stuff. I recommend that your audio is better than video when you're running, uh, just so that you can stay focused on the things in front of you. Uh, and the same for driving as well. I would recommend audio instead of video for driving. Jim began this series for us, and he addressed the whole idea of surrender. And remember, we had those little white flags that we're supposed to take home and, and talk about what God is calling us to surrender, not something very comfortable for us to do, not something that we're interested even maybe in doing that, but God was calling us to surrender. The second week, Tom challenged us with engage. Not only did he challenge us with engage, but he told a story about a particular chap called Ted that we're all scared of, uh, super strong. I mean, comic Marvel strong, but this guy, Ted, you don't want to ever drive with him. I mean, just, you're just happy that he exists. But what was great about what uh, Tom shared with us is that not only did it engage us, but it also engaged himself in a new level. And so it's about talking to yourself as well as to the community as well. And last week, you guys heard, even though you know, there was a rumor there was snow last week, oh, man, people just like, oh, there's snow. It's like you live in a, in a state that has no snow. And you're like, I don't know what we're going to do. And anyway, but anyway, people came, which was great. And I watched the whole service. It was fantastic. And Jim preached on leading. But he said that in order to lead, you need to be a follower of Christ. When you follow Christ, you become a leader. And he laid that challenge down for us. But today, we are at the end of this series. And as we end this series, we've called this message today, all full stop. I would have said period, but it's a really weird, weird word in English uh, over in the United Kingdom, so I'm going to stay focused on saying all full stop. And I want you to turn with me to the book of Revelation because this is a great passage as Pastor Lyle was sharing in the song here, but Revelation chapter 19. Now, you know that we have the Bibles in the pews. You're welcome to take those Bibles with you, marking them, writing them, whatever you like, but Revelation chapter 19, page 721. So if you never don't know where Revelation is, let's go to page 721, Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. And I'm going to read this passage to you, which is phenomenal. Then I saw heaven opened. Behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his high thigh his name is written, King of kings and Lord of lords." John, who wrote this while on the island of Patmos, uses language all through the book of Revelation that scares the bejeebas out of people. They're just like, I don't know how to interpret any of this stuff. But when John wrote this, everybody got it. 
He was using language that they understood. In fact, the book of Revelation was recited to people. I know some of you don't believe in drama, but that's what he did. He recited the book, and as he recited it, people understood all the imagery, all the beauty, and they saw when he says that he was the land, they understood the sacrifice. When they saw the blood, in some translations it says sprinkled instead of dipped, it meant that it was a sacrifice of God all over him. He understood this kind of stuff. The language was rich, and it carried weight all the way through. And John is saying, I want you to know that there's nothing you need to do because there is Jesus, and he has done it all, full stop. And when you embrace this Jesus, you sometimes focus on the Jesus of the Lamb of God in John, but when you get to Revelation, he's talking about the Jesus of Revelation. He's talking about the King of Kings. He's saying that is the Jesus that you want to connect and you want to know. Both combined together, John is trying to give you a full picture of who God is all the time. And he's saying, it is amazing. It is all full stop. So the first question that we have inside our recalibrate questions, inside your worship guide, which I hope that you will wrestle through. Maybe some of you will join some of our classes and address that question as well. And hey, Betty, really nice to see you up there. I know, I know you're up there, but it's okay. I mean, feel free to sit up in the balcony and hide. Uh, but it's really good if you guys haven't seen Betty Moon in a while. She's just up there and just say hi. All right, good. Anyway, so back to here. Um, she hasn't been in a while. Okay, so why is our picture of Jesus so small? This is the question. When God is this all-powerful God, when God is saying, I'm coming back, exactly, I'm excited. And when I'm coming back and I'm excited like this, why is our picture of God so small? Why is our picture of Jesus so tinsy-winsy that we just don't even get it and are not even really excited about it? When a few brothers of mine uh, met together in Denver all those years ago, and I've got a few of them here as well, which we're really excited about, we really decided that in that room, in that little room in that Holiday Inn right next to the airport there, that it was about Jesus. And when we wrote this, and Tim Gillespie was the one who did this, he wrote, you know what it is, it's, it's Jesus full stop. But then he actually added the word all full stop because he realized, you know what the difficulty is? If you write Jesus full stop, people won't know that that's a full stop, that it's the end, that it's all inclusive. You actually have to spell it out to them and add the word all. Because if you add the word all, then they'll get it. They're like, oh, I didn't see that little full stop. And those of us like Mark Johnson who will watch very carefully every sentence that's ever written and making sure that there's commas, I actually am very scared every time I send an email out. Because Mark, Mark will often just you know, correct it gently and send it back to me and say, maybe a comma would have helped. Uh, a full stop might have done something, a colon here. One day I had an argument with Mark by email, and, uh, and I said to him that he had misunderstood a word. <laughs> oh my goodness, the lesson learned. I, I said no, and I went and did some research, and I said, this is what the word means. Mark, very gently, he's probably laughing away in his head, sends this email back to me with a link to the American Journal of Medicine, where he wrote an article 4,000 years ago explaining the true definition of this word and how the United States, country, the entire country, has agreed and sent it to this definition. So I have learned not to send Mark any emails anymore with any content, just blank, ha, huh. enjoy. So words, 
powerful, powerful words, and we understood that this is a struggle for us to embrace that Jesus full stop is enough. So we added the word all full stop, and we felt that's what it's got to be, and maybe people will get this. Yeah, for some reason, I think that we want to say Jesus and something, and Jesus with something, and Jesus could be this plus this, and, and when you get Jesus and this, then you actually understand God, because to embrace Jesus would not be enough. And this is a deep struggle, a deep struggle for people because they, they don't comprehend and understand that this picture of Jesus is far larger. So I want you to use your imaginations with me just for a second. I want you to imagine that the children of Israel, or no, let's go better than this. Let's imagine that we are in exile, okay? You put that in your head and you imagine what exile looks like. You suddenly realize you don't have a lot of clothes, you don't have any home, you're in exile, you're suffering. And then you're looking and imagine now you're searching for something great. You're searching for, you know, the right president. <laughs> I know, it's so much fun to watch. Uh, the right president to come along and rescue you and, and to bring you out of exile inside here. And then you start searching all over the Bible because you're trying to understand who it is and what's going to happen and how is the truth going to come together. And suddenly Jesus arrives and you're like, what? That's just too small. I want something better than that. Well, you don't have to use your imagination because John chapter 5 tells us this story. And I want you to dive with me to John chapter 5, page 614, page 614 in your Bibles inside the pews, but John chapter 5. John starts off with this beautiful story that Jesus is sharing here. Jesus is starting to explain to the people that it's not really that small, that it's huge and pretty phenomenal stuff inside there. And so in John chapter 5, he says this, verse 30, 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, but because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John, Jesus is saying, listen, I don't do anything without surrendering and handing myself over to the Father. Everything that I do is because I have surrendered and I have full dependence on God, the Father, which is really difficult for us as men because we like to surrender to no one and we like to have dependence on no one. We just like to be able to be the ones that people can depend on and be the ones that people should surrender to because that's what we are. We carry different types of flags as we move through our life, but God is saying, I live the life, a model life to you, where I surrender to the Father, and this is the model life that we're supposed to have. Verse 31, he says this, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. He's like, look, you get it. If I told you that I'm God, <laughs> You'd be like, ah, that's okay. Maybe I believe it because they don't trust his own witness about himself here. So verse 32, he says this, there is another who bears witness about me, which I believe that another is a reference to the Holy Spirit. He says when the Holy Spirit bears reference to me, he gives you an idea of who God is, and you think, well, that's good. I get that. I understand a little bit more about God. This is good. And because the Holy Spirit is telling me, touch him in my heart, it makes sense to me. And Jesus says, well, and then there was another, verse 34, and you, you know, verse 33, you sent to John, and he's born witness of the truth, John the Baptist. And he said, John the Baptist did a good job. And he said, behold the lamb. And he pointed out Jesus. But even verse 35, he says, even when he was a burning and shining lamp, even though John the Baptist was spectacular, you know, it was like, whoa, let's just look at that guy. He's wearing, what is he wearing? And what is he eating? And what is he saying? Is he a, a barbarian? Is he, is he normal? I don't know. But his spectacular performance 
had people enthralled, and Jesus saying, even with the spectacular, you were not impressed by this. You were maybe touched by the Holy Spirit, but not entirely. And then he says, verse 36, verse 37 here, but the Father has sent me, and the Father is the one who sends me. And when you hear that God the Father sent Jesus, you start to feel to yourself, this is good. Now here's the secret. John does this, and Jesus did this, and John records this and tells us a story in parallels to tell us there's nuggets inside here. He says, look, you can take Jesus and John the Baptist and put them together, and they can declare that Jesus is indeed the one. But that's not good enough. It's just okay. You can take the Holy Spirit and the Father, and together they tell you that Jesus is the one, and you're thinking, yeah, I kind of believe that. But, he says, if you put them together, if you put the human witnesses with the divine witnesses, and you give it all, full stop, then you understand who Jesus is. And God is saying, it takes all of us. Verse 37 onwards, verse 37 onwards, he says this, and just in case you don't get all, and you're just wondering about the Bible, and you're not quite sure where the Bible is supposed to be inside, he says, look, I want you to understand that there's some deep, pivotal truths about who Jesus is. So he says, verse 37, verse 38, and you do not know, have this word abiding you, for you do not believe the one who sent you. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness of me. So when you're searching the Bible, and this is the thing when we do this, he says everything points to Jesus. The entire Bible points to Jesus. Not to one element, not to one doctrine, not to one teaching, not to one notion, not to one idea. It points to the one, Jesus Christ. Every single page needs to do this. There are those who study the Bible because they like to study the Bible, because what they want is knowledge. They want facts, and they want data. Then there are those who study the Bible because they want to discover who God is. And when you approach this book as facts and data, it's just a book with facts and data. And you become one of those facts and data people, which we would refer to as robots. You have no idea how to talk. You have no idea how to communicate. You just like recite things, blah, 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 like vomit. And vomit is not good because it's not actually expressing who God is. But when you read the scriptures and you start to see Jesus Christ through here, the Bible comes to life because the Bible is actually pointing you to Jesus all the time. And he's saying this is what it's all about. Let me give you a couple of classic examples in this. When you read the Sermon on the Mount, it says that Jesus says, you have heard it said, right? The Bible says this, but I tell you this. You have heard it said, but I tell you this. When you interpret scripture through Jesus Christ, you understand that it takes you to truth. Paul spent most of his writings of the New Testament here, in the Second Testament here, all about trying to express who Jesus was in the First Testament. That's all he does. In fact, next week we're gonna begin a whole new series in the book of Galatians. And we're gonna do three weeks, the book of Galatians. I'm looking forward to Kevin. He's gonna read the first couple of weeks for us and Patty's gonna read on the last week. We're gonna cover two chapters per week. So I need you to read Galatians 1 and 2. It's gonna take you, ooh, let me see, out of a whole week, it'll take you seven minutes. Yeah, if you could just spare seven minutes, 
read Galatians chapter 1 and 2 every day. Just let God soak it in and say, what does this teach me about Jesus Christ? You'll be prepared for next week. I don't even need you to read 3 and 4, 5 and 6 yet. I'm just asking for this week, chapters 1 and 2. Just chapters 1 and 2. What are you going to read this week? Which book? Good. This is so good. I thought you would have forgotten by now. So you've got to read this stuff. When you read this stuff, you see Jesus, and Paul is doing the same thing he's seen Jesus. In fact, this fall, we're going to launch a new class here called An Introduction to Christianity or something like that, and we're going to hit. Mark's going to be leading this class with 700 other people he doesn't know about yet, but, uh, but this class is going to be taking one book of the Bible every single week, and as we take one book of the Bible, we're going to say, what does this book teach you about God? What does this book reveal to you about Jesus Christ? That's the best introduction you could ever have to Christianity is when you can say, what does the Bible teach me about God? So we're pretty pumped about that, pretty excited about that. But this text, just in case you're, you're worried that maybe we've misunderstood the Trinity here, I'm just going to ex- remind you and tell you, for some of you who are new here, let me explain how it works. There is no tension in the Trinity. They have no problem with each other. The Father says, you know what I do? I actually, I actually send you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit says, it's not me, I point you to Jesus. And Jesus says, when you see me, you have seen the Father. And the Father says, it's not me, I send you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit says, it's not me, I send you to Jesus. And Jesus says, when you have seen me, you see the Father. And that continual dance in the Trinity is what the Bible does. So the Bible has Jesus portrayed all through Scripture, saying when you see me, you see the Father, and you understand it comes from the Holy Spirit. So it's tugging at you. It's talking to you all the time. And God knows this so really, really well. So our tension, though, is that we don't want to give all full stop. We prefer to give probably more of a part-time involvement, right? It's kind of a little bit of an engagement. We're kind of semi-engaged, as Tom was challenging us. We sit on the sidelines and we say, oh, that's awful. We'll sit in the truck and the guy, Ted, is pushing it up and we're like, well, should we release the handbrake? I don't know, we're not engaged. And this is a problem with us all the time. We're never willing to give all full stop to God. And he's saying, I need you to be a follower. I need you to be engaged all the way through this. There's an advert on TV that came out uh, about a week ago. Um, just a disclaimer, uh, I am an AT&T phone person, so this is not about AT&T, so I can say this. It's about Verizon. I don't know if you've seen it. Ricky Gervais, he's in the office. You know this, the, the guy? So he does this advert about Verizon. Anybody here Verizon cell person? Anybody here T-Mobile? I'm sorry. All right, so... <laughs> I'm going to say this gently. So Ricky Gervais gets up, and he and you can Google this. I'm not showing you because otherwise we wouldn't be able to post this online. Uh, he gets up and he says, you know, there are some telephone networks out there who say that they are four times better than everybody else. And we say, four times better than what? And we went to them and talked to them, and they said, we're four times better than what we were before. And he says, well, hang on a second. What you should really be saying is, you were rubbish before, and now you're four times better than rubbish. That's what you are. You're not better than Verizon. You haven't even reached Verizon's level. You're still rubbish. He's talking about T-Mobile. And so <laughs> he's like, this is what it's all about. And the thing is this, you watch this advert and you think to yourself, yes, I don't want a rubbish network. I don't want a network where my calls are dropped, where I'm talking to someone and it just disappears, my text never goes through. That could be the problem, Jim. 
Well, you never received those texts because you're on T-Mobile. We'll pray for you more. And so, you know, maybe I don't want that kind of stuff. I don't want to be able to be part of a partial network. I want the best. I want to be connected all the time. I want it all full stop. Yet when it comes to Jesus, we are very comfortable with a, a spotty reception. Right? We're very comfortable with our text messages of prayer barely getting through. We're very comfortable maybe opening the Word of God and saying, yes, it is a chapter, and I'll look at it sometime. You know, we're all comfortable with kind of a semi-production Christian walk, and God is saying, that's not good enough. You need to be much more engaged with this. We don't want just body engagement. We don't want you dropping your leadership off, and we definitely don't want you only partially following God. We want you fully engaged with this. Which brings us to question number two in your worship guide. So if you turn with me to your worship guides again. Question number two. If Jesus brings it all, full stop, to the table, why do we bring anything less then full stop. Think about it. Why do we bring anything less? If God is bringing absolute everything to the table, why do we bring anything less than full stop to Jesus Christ? Because he gives it all. He gives it all so that we may be able to live a life. And you think about it, you think about your marriage, you think about your work, you think about your parenting, you think about being a father and a husband and a leader. I mean, all of these areas here, we struggle inside it. When you look at marriage, it's amazing actually. We, we read the Bible for principles all the time. Have you heard people say this? It's not about the preferences, it's about the principles. And then once I have a principle, I know everything there is in the Bible. The difficulty with the principle is the principle is not Jesus. Jesus is the only principle inside this. So when you go inside the Bible and you're reading the text and you get the Genesis and you're reading about marriage, you're thinking to yourself, well here's a principle about marriage. God created Adam first. Yeah. Order is important. And then he created, you know, Eve second. And so Eve's not as important as man because he was created first. But here's the difficulty. If you go with order because you're looking for principles, then you should really say, God created the elephant first. And then he thought, I'll create the man. And then I'll create the woman. But the elephant Oh, he's the king of the jungle. That's what it is, right? And we're stuck over there. And if you say, no, 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 it's about the pinnacle of creation. He created all the animals and then he got to Adam. But that doesn't work because Eve's next. And you're like, oh no, that means she's the pinnacle of creation. And you don't want that, right, man? So you're like, no, let's not go to the principle. Let's go to what the Bible's talking to us about, which is that Jesus is the center of creation. Creation is about Jesus being in the middle of it. What if your marriages were actually connected with that? Then you're like, oh, but you didn't read it properly. You gotta read the little word, helper. And when you read helper, you're like, well, she was supposed to be a helper, so could you help me? You know, one meal every day, three times? I don't know, help me, right? But when you read helper in the Bible, helper is always referred to as God helping Israel. The same word, 
So, and then you don't want that, because then that means women are going to be up here again. This is not working out. We've got to make sure there's something else in here. And so then you look at the story for the story which is telling you that Jesus is saying, I created you both to appreciate each other. The rib is to symbolize that you are equal together. Yet sin comes along, it destroys all of this, and you read in Genesis, it turns around, and suddenly he's looking up, and she's looking up, and she's saying, oh, I've got to like these men now. And he's like, I've got to rule this woman now, and people take this text so crazy, they're like, but I'm the man, (laughs) and because I'm a man, I've got to rule everything, I've got to be in control, 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 until they blow up, and that's what ends up happening to men, they end up having heart attacks way more than women do, they have stress levels way more because they don't know how to live in surrender to God first, and then to surrender to their partners next. And God is saying, that's what I'm looking for. And man, we end up trading sex for whatever else we can trade for. We end up trading roles, and we have tensions about what your role is and my role. And everybody's trying to say, there's a tradition, not anymore. This is a tradition, not anymore. And we're constantly recreating traditions because we're never looking for Jesus in the story. We're looking for principles only. Work was supposed to be joy when you do it. It was supposed to be able to protect and to build. It happened before sin. I know you're like, I'm pretty sure we weren't supposed to work. But if you read the Bible, it says you were created to till the land, to create the stuff. In fact, you were supposed to name the animals, which is why we have some really weird names of animals that can't be spelled. I mean, this is the difficulty we had because we are creative people. God created us this way, to be creative with work and to be able to create things. But now work has become a noose around our neck. This is the tension we have as men and as women today when we're working. It's just, it's taken us down and we run to addictions, to all sorts of escapism because we suffer from understanding what work is about. And parenting, when you read the Bible, the Bible talks about parenting being this incredible experience of being in surrender to God, where you're living with God. And as a parent, as a father, you're supposed to be feeling like, God, you are changing me all the time to make me better. I need to change my kids all the time to make them better. I want to be a mentor to them. I want to be invested in their life. And God, you're so merciful to me when I make stupid mistakes. And yet we are so not merciful to our kids when they make stupid mistakes every day, every hour. I'm not looking in a particular direction, Jonah. I'm just saying, these are things that we do, right? We're like struggling all the time with this. And we're just, as parents, we kind of try to control everything. And God is saying, you, not about power, not about punishment. It's actually about investing in their life. One of my worst regrets in my life that I'm constantly trying to talk to God about is being a father, to be the better father. I really want to be a great father, and I want to do better with that. And this is the thing, you can say you love someone, But if you don't follow through the way God follows through, the way God gives you all, it doesn't work that way. So what do we do? We say to ourselves, well, everything needs our attention. Work needs our attention. Marriage needs our attention. Church needs our attention. Life, family, all of it needs our attention. So what we're going to do is we're going to just ignore a few of them and focus on a few that are really important right now. Today, I'm going to focus on church. Forget the family. (laughs) They're going to be around tomorrow. You're like, yes, no. I was like, why didn't anybody say, shock horror? You were like, yes, of course, pastor, that's right. I'm like, shame on you. (laughs) We need to focus on all three all at the same time because God has said, I want all full stop. 
You may not be able to be brilliant at everything, but you've got to be part of everything all the time. You never put on a hat and say, hey, now I'm a dad, now I'm working, now I'm a husband. You're a husband all the time. You've got to be engaged all the time. You can't come home and say, I've had a really bad day and I'm not going to be engaged right now. I've been emotionally charged with something. You've got to be engaged all the time. This is what surrender comes to when you surrender to God because he gives you that kind of power. And the Bible tells us the whole story inside is that Jesus is saying, I want to restore you back to this place. I want to take you to a great meta-narrative. Now, we love meta-narratives in Adventism, and so we have this great one called the Great Controversy. And if you've never heard of this in our tribe, it's fantastic. It's about this battle between good and evil. And you're like, yeah, I get that. And this is why the whole world's living inside this huge tension right now because there's a battle between good and evil. But that is not the story of the great controversy. The great controversy is not about a battle between good and evil. It's about that Jesus wins, that he's victorious, that he's going to win. This stuff that happens here, these are the principles and the details that we get lost in. You gotta think of the story. And the story is saying it is, that Jesus is gonna win in the end. So this takes us to our final question that I'm gonna ask you, are you ready to shift on? Question number three. And this is a tough question, question number three. And I want you to do this because I'm gonna invite Patty and Alex to come up here and join me. But question number three here, I want you to take your guides out. So I need to hear the sound of paper. Yeah, that's good, that's good. All right, now I need you to take the pens out that are in front of you. This is like, oh, I wasn't hoping for that one. Yeah, that's right. You actually need to activate it. It's like a MI6 thing or CIA, just like click, it's amazing. I'm gonna ask you to answer question number three on our Connect card, all right? Question number three is this. If Jesus is all, full stop, what kind of men and women would we be? Now, before you answer, and you may have been thinking about this already since this morning, since you came in and you prayed as you came in and you thought about this, we're going to share a few stories ourselves, a few illustrations ourselves of what it means to have Jesus be all. I'm going to start off with Patty. Patty's a chaplain at uh, Walla Walla University, senior chap over there, bit of a troublemaker. And the shorter fellow in the middle is the senior pastor of Walla Walla University Church, Alex Bryan. So uh, we, we don't refer to him as a short one, um, but, but you know, there's some brightness that comes from him occasionally. So we're glad, we're glad. So we're gonna start off with Patty, and, uh, and then we'll go, we'll go through. Well, first of all, uh, honor to be here with you. I got to come uh, end of October and be a part of Young Adult Festival, so it's great to be back. There's nothing like driving into Boulder and seeing the mountains just surrounding. Uh, we have mountains, but they're, they're probably hills. Uh, around Walla Walla compared to what you have. Um, for me, I, the, my story comes from actually the time I, when I accepted the call to be chaplain at Walla Walla University because I was in a position um, where I felt like I could do what I was doing. And I, I could do it fine. I, I, was, I was talented enough. I had enough gifts to do that job um, without really God's help. I mean, I, I was glad that he was blessing what I was doing but I didn't really need to, to depend on him. And then this call came to be the chaplain at Walla Walla, and things changed. Uh, there was a, a sense of a calling in my life that I needed to take this position, and part of the reason I needed to take it was because it scared me to death, because I knew that it wasn't something I could do 
on my own talent and, and my own reserves. It was something I was going to need someone bigger than I was um, to, to accomplish this, this position. But what happened then over the course of my life, I, I, my wife's name is Trisha. I have two children, Aiden and Allie. Aiden is 14. Uh, Allie is 11. And um, they were, uh, this was eight years ago, so they were younger at the time. Uh, but what happened over the next six months once I accepted that position was some things changed uh, in my life. Now, I had experienced levels of, of anxiety, um, sometimes depression before in my life, but it had ramped up to a level that I'd never experienced before. I was losing weight. Uh, I wasn't eating much. I, was, I wasn't sleeping well. Um, and everything was kind of uh, piling in. Uh, I, I lived in a sense of constant fear, fear that uh, I would be somehow found out to be a fraud or really not that the right person for this position or I was going to fail. Uh, I was only as good as my next idea or my next message. Um, and, and then once that was over, it was, well, how do, I, how do I match that or how do I do that again? And so uh, about six months, my relationships with my wife and my children had changed. I, I was so consumed with just surviving a day. I was all I could think about was just getting through a day. Um, and then the next day would come, and how do I get through that day? Um, then six months in came the diagnosis that I had a general anxiety disorder uh, and a little bit of depression. Those two uh, like to follow each other around. Uh, it's always kind of nice. You have this with the sight of that. Oh, thank you. That's very sweet of you. Um, and this, this became my life uh, up to the point to where um, it was, there, there were days when I struggled with, the only way I could ever think about getting better or getting out of this and not being a burden on my family was to think about ending my life. Um, because you, come, you, you become convinced that, there, that, that your reality will never change, that this is going to be your life every day forever. And of course, there were some people that were telling me, no, you just got to get out of the job. The job's causing this for you. This is too much. Um, and that would have been, in some ways, an easy way out, uh, just to do something else, go back to something I knew I could handle on my own. But... I didn't feel that was what the answer was because I felt like it wasn't the job, it, it was me. And so in my prayer life, as I cried out to Jesus over and over again, and what do I do and how do I survive and how do I be a better man and a husband and a father and a follower of yours, um, I, uh, I came to a place where, first of all, there were, there were a lot of things that happened and not much you can, you can't share the whole story in five minutes, but... Um, there was one passage I came to that was meaningful to me, um, and it's from Isaiah 43, but it's in the Message Bible, which is a translation, uh, a, a paraphrase of Scripture. So um, Eugene Peterson writes that, and there's sometimes, I don't know if you've read the Message Bible, sometimes I read it, and I'm like, what did he say? I don't, I don't really, what? Um, and other times, it just hits me, and this one really hit me. It says this, but now God's message, the God who made you in the first place, Jacob, the one who got you started, Israel, don't be afraid. I've redeemed you. I've called your name. You're mine. When you're in over your head, I'll be there with you. When you're in rough waters, you will not go down. When you're between a rock and a hard place, it will not be a dead end because I am your God, your personal God, the holy of Israel, your savior. I paid a huge price for you. All of Egypt with rich Cush and Seba thrown in. That's how much you mean to me. That's how much I love you. I'd sell off the whole world to get you back. Trade the creation just for you. So don't be afraid. I am with you. And in one of those days where I was battling with living life, 
my wife came to me and she said, Patty, you have got to fight. You've got to fight for me and you've got to fight for your children. And you've got to fight for God because he's called you to something that's bigger than you are. And, and from that moment on, I, it was whatever I could do to, to be in the fight. And, and for a while, the fight consumed me. And I remember I was, I was in counseling. I was in all sorts of things, trying to work through this. And I was talking to my counselor who was an ex-Marine. And the ex-Marine said to me at one point, he's like, Patty, you know what it's like to be in a fist fight? And I said, uh, and for those in our tribe, you know, I said, oh, I'm, a, I'm an Adventist. <laughs> you know, you don't understand. When we get really mad at each other, we just, we just have a committee. You know, we don't... <laughs> We don't, we don't actually fist fight. You know, it's crazy. Um, but the analogy was that, that this was going to be a fight, and it was going to be constant, and it was going to be tough, and it was going to take surrendering and trusting and fighting. Um, and so for me, for a time, that was all-consuming. It was all I could do. It took all of my energy. And as time went on, and as Jesus began to bring healing into my life, and as I, I began to give him all that I had, one day I just woke up and realized that it wasn't all-consuming. It wasn't all of my life. It, it, it became less as Jesus began to sit on the throne in my life and become everything. And of course, our one project journey and all of that was a part of it uh, for me. It was a part of the healing. It was a part of you know, getting that place of fully trusting and fully surrendering and fully saying Jesus is all, full stop. Um, and as I got to that place, uh, I can tell you eight years later, I, I can't imagine doing anything with, else with my life right now than being in ministry, than being a chaplain, than being married to my wife and being the father to my children. Um, and, and that to me is what it's looked like to give Jesus all and to fight um, for him to be all in my life. So, thank you. I'll add to what Patty said. It's always wonderful to fly southeast down to the beautiful, the beautiful Garden of Eden that is Boulder. It's so good to be with you. I always like coming down here so that I can be insulted by Japheth for uh, a couple of days. Um, and I don't, I don't mind because every seat on the airplane for me is a first-class seat, and that's just a beautiful, uh, a beautiful yes. experience. And, um, and I, I was also thinking about uh, the sequence of creation when you were describing it so beautifully. I thought that was uh, fantastic and how uh, the, there was England... But then the Lord brought into existence the United States of America, and I was just, these patriotic feelings were welling up inside of me as you were communicating that. From So I'm in my 17th year of marriage. Um, about 13 years ago, my wife and I were first making attempts to have children, and month after month would go by unsuccessfully. Uh, our peers were having kids. Um, other women were getting pregnant, and this was profoundly discouraging. We went to a fertility clinic, went through um, all of the testing. Some of you uh, will know about this. And I'll never forget the meeting sitting down with the, um, the expert team, uh, sitting across from a physician who explained it this way, uh, Nicole, your system is like getting into Harvard University. Okay, you've got a very complex anatomy and physiology that we need to deal with. And then he looked at me and said, and Alex, you're producing a bunch of dummies, basically. <laughs> and uh, so the combination of these two is an issue. And then went on to explain how, in the state of Georgia, where there's no insurance to cover this at the time, we could engage in a number of 
uh, amazing technologies uh, to hopefully produce a child. And we blew our life savings at that moment completely, unsuccessfully through four very expensive rounds of procedures that some of you would be very familiar with. Uh, painful season of life to be told again and again. And I, I'll never forget my wife coming out of the anesthesia after the last procedure when uh, the eggs were deemed not viable. And a very sensitive bedside physician said, well, you guys will never have children. And just sort of in that tone. And she was weeping and I was weeping. Probably about six or seven hours later, um, I went and got new tires on our Honda Civic and sort of against doctor's orders because she probably shouldn't have uh, been traveling, she drove all the way across the country to be with her mom in Oregon, okay, by herself. Um, a couple weeks later, we did something. Uh, you know, these are the things that end marriages. You realize that, right? The death of a child, the inability to have kids. Uh, these are things that can, that can end the vows. A couple weeks later, um, we're both sort of outdoor types. Would love to move to Boulder someday, I suppose. Um, we rode our bicycles, the two of us, across the state of Oregon, just the two of us, about 450 miles, plotted our course. And looking back on it now, all of these years later, it was a moment, I think, where we were saying, we need a week together with God. We need to pray together, we need to laugh and cry together, but we need to do something kind of physically that demonstrates the endurance that we need for our marriage. I don't know if we thought through all of that at the time, but looking back on it, we need to do something that requires of us together a sense that we're going to endure. And we did. Uh, we did by the power of the Holy Spirit. We did through the grace of Jesus, and we did, I think, through understanding that Jesus says um, that he endured on the cross and that part of the fruit of moving in his spirit is to live with such endurance, to live sort of this Jesus all idea is to say, I, I want to live by those same principles. Um, gratis, the old-fashioned way, we have two children, a 10-year-old and a 5-year-old, um, are miracles, and that doesn't happen for everybody, but for us, miracles. Um, but uh, when I think back to those moments of crisis in high school, when you're making those little lists of, well, what are you looking for in a, you know, what's romantic? And you come up with these lists of absurd things, right? That I want someone who loves the color blue, you know, I, you know, you come, but it, you, those of us that have been married for a while, you know, you know what's really sexy? Endurance showing up, waking up on a morning and taking out the trash and pushing the vacuum cleaner and wearing old tennis shoes because you want to put, the, put your kids through school. And I mean, that's really what it is, you know, endurance. And that's Jesus. So um, it's a bit of my testimony. Amen. It's, uh, it's actually uh, Alex and I who, who sat down in Andrew's campus, what, 2009? When I first heard him preach, he did a week of prayer for us and we connected. And at that moment, we knew, you know, we had a friendship, we had an understanding uh, and a connection with that. And then we got together um, here in Denver at that hotel. And in that room, what I realized more than ever before is that I wanted Jesus to hear the voice of Jesus in my life again. For some reason, you know, 
you can, you can be a husband and you can be a father and you can kind of do your job. And my job, I just felt like I wasn't really hearing the voice of Jesus uh, through that. And that began the search, it began the one project, began the search, uh, the quest in our life to be able to listen to what God was calling us to. What does it really mean to give all, full stop, to God? So one of the things was for me, I had to leave a really comfortable place, Andrews University where I was working, a, a very comfortable position, not that challenging in some places and challenging in other places, and, and leave that and go find a difficult church. I found a difficult church. Uh, Boulder. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, you are. <laughs> and it has been phenomenal because I want to belong to something. I want to belong to a community that's actually a real community. I want to belong to a community and lead a community that actually is desperately, actively trying to hear the voice of God as well. And I feel that we're trying to do that here at Boulder. And there are days when it's going stronger and other days when it's not. And uh, we try very hard, you know, to communicate everything that's going on. And so we, you, you'll notice in the bulletins that we email out, anything we're discussing, we, unless it's confidential, we will send it out. So I sent out a bulletin not too long ago, a couple of weeks, mentioned the organ in, in the bulletin that we were discussing, uh, moving it, selling it, refining it, fire it, I don't know, you know, a whole series of different things. The reaction uh, from a couple of people was phenomenal, phenomenal. Uh, and I, I just want, for the record, our organist, Becky Carlisle, did not say anything to me about this. So what I'm about to say didn't come from her. Somebody came to me and, and basically wagged their finger at me, but, uh, but told me, you can't do this. I mean, it was very strong language. It got much stronger than that. And really quite upset, I mean, like, pain that they're going through, the idea that we may possibly remove the organ and move it away. Well, I tried to explain to them that that's not the intent. The intent is to explore it. But here's the thing. You can't explore something without talking about it. <laughs> so you have to mention it. So we explored an option that we're going to get rewired in and we've moved it here and we're going to be able to have it in our sound system so you'll hear it through the live stream and a whole bunch of other wonderful things as well. So it's great. But here's the thing. I haven't had a single person come up to me and say, it's just not good enough, Pastor. You can't keep church going this way if we're not connecting to people. And that's what I want. I want you to get angry. I want you to get angry and I want you to say, it's not good enough. It's not good enough that my son and my daughter don't come to this church. It's not good enough that my husband and my wife struggle with this church. It's not good enough that they're not connected to God. I want you to, when you look at the bulletin and you see that we're short of $21,000 this month, to say, it's not good enough. I'm going to make sure that I sacrifice more to make sure that we meet our budget so we can do our mission. That's what you're going to write down. When you look inside the bulletin and you hear us appeal that we need greeters and we need people to help with AV and more of the diaconate, you're going to say, it's not good enough that I'm not giving my time because I'm wanting to give all full stop to God. And I tell you this, when you start to give all to God, you are changed. He does transform you. So I want you, while we're doing our final song and the team's up here, I want you to take this Connect card and I want you to fill it in. And I want you to write down what it is that God is saying to you that you need to give all to Him. And when you do that, you can put it inside the watering can or inside the offering places they go through or in any of the offering altars here. And if you have the courage, even write your name down. And we'll follow up with you to help you to give all to God. Thank you, brothers.